You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Jesus, you are alive. You're alive, you're present in this place by your spirit. You're alive, seated at the right hand of your Father. You're not just alive in some ethereal, spiritual, metaphorical kind of a sense. You came in the flesh. You suffered on a cross. You were dead. You were laid in a tomb. And you conquered death. It was impossible for death to hold you down. You are alive and we worship you and we praise you. And as we have identified ourselves with your death on the cross, as we have died to sin and died to self, we ourselves have experienced new life of you living inside of us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. God, we thank you and we praise you. And so, Father, we pray right now that as we open the written word, that you would show us the living word, your son, Jesus Christ, and that your spirit who inspired these words written by Nehemiah about his own experiences, God, that you would speak to us so powerfully directly to our hearts. So, God, we need to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us so clearly in a way that only you can. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to the book of Nehemiah. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle. For people who don't have a Bible with them, just put your hand up or holler at them. We want to make sure everyone has a chance uh, to follow uh, along. Uh, before we jump into God's Word, just a quick update about Harvest Bible Chapel Ottawa. On Friday night, they had another prayer meeting. Here's a look at their growing uh, team. You can see Ray down there on the front. I think Natalie must be taking the picture. And uh, yeah, that's worth, I think we can cheer a little louder about that. And uh, so excited about what God uh, is doing there. And uh, I just want to encourage you, go to harvestottawa.ca and um, uh, sign up for their newsletter so that you can just get, find ways to get updated with what's happening and find out about their next prayer meeting so you all can take a road trip uh, down to Ottawa, spend the weekend uh, there and uh, pray together with this great growing uh, group of uh, people. We find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter Three And to sort of set up today's message, I want to read to you a couple of quotations from Winston Churchill. Uh, Winston Churchill knew a little bit about never giving up, leading England uh, through uh, the Second World War. He spoke in an address to the House of Commons on June 4th, 1940. He said this, he said, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. He said that to the House of Commons, the most powerful people in the nation. 
And he declared that at the, at the beginning of the Second World War. Notice how he said, oh, we shall fight in France. There, there came a time quite soon after that where they could no longer fight in France because they lost France and they had to evacuate France and return. And things were not looking good for England, for all of Europe. And Winston Churchill had this resolve to never give up. A little over a year later, he's giving another speech, this time not to the House of Commons, but to a group of students, a group of students attending the Harrow School, the school where Winston Churchill went to school. And this is what he said. When things seemed to be getting a lot worse, not a lot better in the war effort, this is what he had to say. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days of our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our stations to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. When we turn to Nehemiah chapter three, these are dark days, but these are actually great days. When we think about living in the city of Brampton in a country like Canada in 2016, that's all that's happening locally and globally. These are dark days and yet these are great days that God in his infinite wisdom and kindness and providence has allowed us and given us the responsibility of serving him during these days. But it's a fight. But God has promised to fight for us and that makes all the difference. So the series is never give up. The reason why we never give up today from today's message is we never give up because God will fight for us. And so we begin in Nehemiah chapter three. Now, a couple of things. I wanna quote another passage before we dive into Nehemiah chapter three and that's 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 16. If you've got a Bible in your hand, this is foundation, foundational for our understanding about what is this book that we are holding in our hands. 2 Timothy three says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Now, the reason why I emphasize this verse right now is because Nehemiah chapter three fits under the category of all scripture. Nehemiah chapter three is a list of names. And sometimes when we come across a list of names, we think, oh, I just gotta skip over this or what can I get out of this? Listen, not every passage of scripture speaks to us in the same way, but God has promised that every passage will speak to us, that it is indeed profitable. Now I've read this passage, I don't know how many times this week to study and to prepare. There are 75 hard to pronounce names in one chapter. And I'm not gonna put you through me trying to pronounce all of them. And so what we're going to do is I'm just gonna give you an overview of what's happening in Nehemiah chapter three. Then we're gonna jump into Nehemiah chapter four after that in a little bit more detail to show us that we should never give up because God will fight for us. We're involved in a fight. There is a battle that is raging all around us. And here's the ultimate truth from Nehemiah chapter three. It's the first point for the message, jot it down, that unity is essential. Unity is essential. 
Our enemy is Satan and his tactic from the very beginning has always been divide and conquer. And united we stand. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter three is an incredible picture of unity. And unity starts from the top and it starts with humility. Look at chapter three, verse one. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Who was the first one to roll up their sleeves and to do the work? Who was the first one who said, I'm all in? Who's the first one that was willing to get dirty? The the last person who you would expect. The high priest led the way of unity. The high priest, how did he lead the way with unity? He led it with humility. Taking off his priestly garments and the ephod and all of the jewels that he wore on his chest and putting on a tool belt and getting his hands that so often are doing the ceremonial cleansing in order to offer sacrifice, getting those hands dirty, getting a shovel, getting a trowel, getting to work, building the wall. There is no hope for unity without humility. The biggest barrier to a unified church is pride among its people. Arrogance, thinking that I'm too good to do that or I'm too good to be with these people. Eliashib led right from the beginning. He rose up with his brothers. He got all of the other priests involved and they built the sheep gate. So unity is absolutely essential and unity flows from humility. The gate that they got started on was the sheep gate. Here's a, just a, a very basic map of uh, the city of Jerusalem as it was built. I did teach grade nine geography once. I never taught art, okay? So just bear with the diagrams here. But the sheep gate, notice how close it is to the temple. And that is where the, the high, that's the, the gate the high priest would have cared about. That's where when animal sacrifices were being brought into the temple, they went in through the sheep gate so that sacrifices for sin could be, could be offered. The way Nehemiah chapter three works is he's gonna move counterclockwise around the city. And so verses one to seven is gonna take us across the the northern part of the wall. And that's what's being uh, described here. Now look at verse two. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. The men, they would know a few things about walls, right? Jericho. And the, the lesson here is that The people who built the walls of Jerusalem didn't all live in Jerusalem. They came from Jericho. They came from seven other locations that are hard to pronounce. And they all commuted in. They all went through the inconvenience. They had their own farms, their own families, their own cities. But they had a concern for the city of Jerusalem, the glory of God and his purpose. And they chose to inconvenience themselves. So, Unity flows from humility, but it's outworking. The way that it's applied is when we are willingly inconvenienced in order to accomplish a common goal. And the people from Jericho and from a number of other places, it's a 32 kilometer radius. People were coming from all over. That's like people from, from, coming from Caledon in the north and Vaughan to the east, all the way Port Credit, Mississauga down to the south and Milton to the west. People coming from all over, inconveniencing themselves. They could have stayed with their own family, their own farm. They have their own responsibilities. But they chose to help re 
build. And if we're gonna be united as a church, we're gonna need humility. We're gonna need to be willing to be inconvenienced in order to accomplish a greater purpose. Now look down at verse five. It says, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired. The Tekoites, that's another location. They're again, multiple kilometers away from the city of Jerusalem. The people from Tekoa, they all came down. Well, not all of them. Look what it says. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Not everyone has the humility that's needed. Not everyone is willing to inconvenience themselves. It says that they wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. See, here's the scary thing. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. I don't know if the nobles of Tekoa are in heaven or not, but it's going on for all eternity that when all of these people decided to get united and it seems so impossible and I can't believe they did it, they rebuilt the wall, everyone except the nobles of Tekoa. Going to visit Jerusalem, you know, at the feast of Passover with their kids and their grandkids and the other dads are saying, oh, that's the part we built right there. And the other grandfathers are telling the stories about Nehemiah and all this stuff. And the kids look up to grandpa and say, what part of the wall did you build? Uh, I, I didn't. They missed out. They missed out. Was it laziness? Was it pride? Whatever it was, they would, it says they wouldn't stoop. You see, in order to serve, in order to achieve a common purpose, in order to be a united church, we have to stoop. We have to let ourselves become low in order to serve a higher purpose. Let, may we not be like the men of Tekoa. Then in verses eight to 13, he starts to describe um, this area on the uh, western side of the city. And if you look down at uh, verse 13, it says, uh, Hanon and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired uh, the valley gate. That's where Nehemiah started his research in chapter two, verse 13. He went out by the valley gate and he started to, to head south and kind of come around. And it was, the destruction was so bad in this area that he had to actually turn around and, and come back. The horse that he was on couldn't even walk through that particular area. The valley gate. And then in verse 14, it says, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Now that's an odd name for a gate. I, I, when they were giving out gate assignments, I'm, I'm sure they're all like, please don't give me the dung gate. Please don't give me the dung gate. Now there's a story behind why it's called the dung gate. That, uh, that gate opened up into a beautiful, or what was a beautiful valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was one of the most beautiful places in all of the Holy Land. And uh, in the days of David and Solomon, just this beautiful, beautiful valley. In fact, it was so beautiful that when the people of Judah got really off track, even though uh, the people to the north, even when they rebelled, even after the Assyrians came and the judgment of God was so clear, even though Isaiah was prophesying so clearly about how they should be living, the people of Judah started to worship idols. And the valley of Hinnom became the major place for the worship of idols. They had idols in the temple, but they also had idols in the valley of Hinnom. And idols are... are 
are a dangerous thing. You start getting your heart off of God and onto other things. Listen, you, you will find yourself doing things you never thought possible. And what would happen in the Valley of Hinnom is they worshiped an idol there called Molech. And Molech promised you a blessing and, 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 and prosperity and victory if you would offer him a sacrifice. But the sacrifice that Molech required was that you would sacrifice one of your infant children. And so kings like Manasseh, kings like Ahaz, Ahaz is the one that was told, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Ahaz was one of the kings that had taken his son and had offered him to Molech. This is the reason why the walls came down. Because they took the valley of Hinnom and they made it into this place where children should be running around and enjoying the, the meadow and everything that's there. And yet these infant babies were being sacrificed. It was awful. So awful that when Josiah, one of the bright lights, one of the great kings of the people of Judah, when he heard God's word, he tore his clothes. He was so convicted about what was happening in his nation. You know what he did? He toppled all of the altars, all of the things that were built up in the worship of Molech and all of the other idols in the valley of Hinnom. And he said, this is now a garbage dump. And that gate that you used to go through, that gate that you used to walk through with your own children to sacrifice, he says, that gate from now on is gonna be called the dung gate. This is never happening again, he said. And we need to have moments like that in our lives, like Josiah, to look at something that we have done or that we have allowed to happen that's so wicked, that's so evil because we've turned our heart away from God and our heart has been given over to something equal and said, never again, this is a garbage dump from now on. Don't even think about going there. And so that's why that gate is called the dung gate. And then in Verses 15 to 32, coming up from the Dung Gate, heading north towards the East Gate. That's what's being described there. Take a look at verse 27. It says, after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite. Do you remember the Tekoites? Sounds like they're not having a hard time without their, without their nobles, are they? They're one of the only groups that actually built two sections of the wall. And so the, the, the nobles of Tekoa were really missing out. Their people ended up being one of the most uh, productive. And then look down at uh, verse 32. It says, and between the upper chamber and the corner and the sheep gate. So now they've gone all the way up, all the way around counterclockwise. And now he's describing, he's come back to the sheep gate. And this is the best picture of unity right beside the high priest and all of the other priests, they're working on the sheep gate. Look who's working beside them at the end of verse 32. The goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Everybody, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, doesn't matter where you're, where you're from, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter who your parents are, doesn't matter how much money you make, doesn't matter how much education you have, we are all in this together. This is how our church needs to be. Unity is absolutely essential. And it all started and it all finished around the sheep gate, the place where sacrifices were to be made. You see, they knew, they all knew that in building this wall, they were becoming part of something that was bigger than themselves. 
that this is where forgiveness of sins, where God has chosen, where people can have their sins forgiven, not just the people of Israel, but the people from all the nations, that sheep would go through that sheep gate and would be laid on the altar and would be killed and burned for the forgiveness of sins. They were part of something bigger than themselves. They were, but here's the thing, they didn't even know how big the bigger was because there was one who was coming, who would walk through these gates, who performed a miracle right at the sheep gate in John chapter five, someone who was going to come, who was the lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. These people were laying the foundation We're establishing the walls. We're setting the scene for the greatest moment in history where Jesus Christ would be crucified and died. Not not in the city, but outside the city. They were a part of something bigger than themselves, even bigger than they could recognize, a part of God's ultimate plan for history. And listen, when you roll up your sleeves and you start to do some work and you start to build up the body of Christ, you are part of something bigger than yourself. All Nehemiah chapter three is, is just a list of names. It's just a list of names of who did what and where they were. It's interesting too, how much organization was required. Some people think that unity is just something we feel about one another. And that's part of it, it's it's, it's love. But listen, unity requires organization and administration. You can see Nehemiah's background here as the cupbearer of the king who would have known all of the ins and outs and the comings of goings around the palace. He had them divided into 40 different groups. Those 75 names, only 38 of them were the actual group leaders. The other 37 were the fathers and the grandfathers because you can't have a list in the Hebrew Bible without being in son of and son of and all of that. All organized into these groups all centered around these different gates, all working together. If we're gonna be united, we have to understand it's gonna require some administration and some organization. So yeah, if you wanna serve in our church, you might need to fill out a form. Yeah, if you're gonna go to our church, you need to go to, if you're gonna serve in our church or join a small group, you need to take Harvest Essentials. It requires some organization. It requires some clear communication. Unity is not just how you feel. Unity involves all of us coming together and working together for a common purpose. You know, it's so beautiful on a day like today. On a a dreary Sunday morning, you pull into the parking lot, you're greeted by a smile by someone like Solomon or Ricardo, and you you, uh, finally find a a parking spot, and and then you're greeted as you come in by Sheila or by Mona, and then you receive a sermon handout that Kathy printed out earlier in the day, and the announcements on the bottom that were organized by uh, Deborah, and then um, you might have got a welcome brochure from Marilyn on your way here, and Holly and Alicia and Georgia, they helped you find find your seat. And if you have kids, then, then Melanie helped you um, get, your, get your, your children signed in to Harvest Kids. And right now they're listening to a lesson from Cliss or Blair or Agnesa or Elethia. And then you sit down in a chair that was laid out by Richard, Scott, Daniel, and James last night. And you hear Jameson and Carla lead you in a song. Meanwhile, Calvin's at the back making sure that everything's coming through clearly. And Roseanne's making sure that you can see things on the screen. And at the end of the day, Chris, Jude, Mark, and Matthew are all gonna tear it all down and put it in a trailer for next week. I got a list of names. I got a list of over 100 names. I didn't mention all of them. It took a hundred people to make this service happen. 
Are you on the list? Are you gonna be like a son of Tekoa, like a noble of Tekoa? That just, for whatever reason, just say, ah, you know what, I'm not in. I don't wanna fill out the form. I, 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 I don't wanna submit to leadership or I just do my own thing. Sure, I belong. I feel like I belong. Listen, you don't belong until you belong. You're not in until you're in. It's not a feeling. Unity is absolutely essential. Here's why, because <laughs> opposition is coming. We can't, we can't be fragmented and divided over petty, silly, foolish things when we realize that there's an actual enemy out there who wants to destroy us. Check out, check out chapter four, verse one. It says, now when Sanballat heard that we were that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and jeered at the Jews. Here, jot this down, that opposition is unavoidable. One of the reasons why unity is essential is because opposition is unavoidable. Listen to what he says in verse two. He said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yeah, oh, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down the stone wall. The, the, the wall so, you know, just break because the fox. <laughs> Look, a lot of ridicule, a lot of, mar- a lot of mocking, a lot of joking, not a lot of facts. Uh, Tobias said that a fox could break down the wall. Uh, between 1961 and 1967, a world-renowned archaeologist named uh, Kathleen Kenyon, uh, who wasn't a believer from what I understand, just did a purely scientific archaeological dig of part of the wall of the city of Jerusalem, she found Nehemiah's wall. Nehemiah's wall was eight to nine feet thick. That's a beast of a fox, dude. That's like something out of science fiction or something like that. That's that's pretty scary, Tobiah. Listen, you might be experiencing opposition. Uh, Maybe you're a university student and you hear it from your professors all the time. You might be the only Christian in your family. You hear it at every meal. Pay attention to what's actually being said. Yeah, there's a lot of belittling. Yeah, there's a lot of mocking and joking and ridicule. Not a lot of facts. A lot of no one believes the Bible. How can anyone believe the Bible? Not a lot of here's why you can't believe the Bible. Because if you really take a look at should you or should you not believe the Bible, there's a lot more evidence on the believe the Bible side. The facts are on our side. Our wall's eight feet thick. And we need to understand that, that opposition is coming, but that we have the truth. And we don't need to shy away from that. And you need to understand that if you're gonna roll up your sleeves and really get serious about serving the Lord and living for him and his purpose, you're gonna find yourself with a target on your chest. And the enemy is gonna try to get you in his crosshairs. He is going to try to take you out. Opposition is unavoidable. So how does Nehemiah come back? 
He's a smart guy. He can think on his feet. I'm sure he had some pretty good one-liners that he could have zinged back at Tobiah and Sam Ballot, but he doesn't say anything to them. He starts speaking to the Lord because prayer is vital. Prayer is vital. Opposition is unavoidable and prayer is vital. Look at how he responds in verse four. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Whoa, whoa, Nehemiah, calm down here. Look at verse five. Uh, do, not covet, do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Is anyone else a little bit uncomfortable with the way Nehemiah is praying right here? Uh, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself, pray for those who persecute you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, don't blot out their sin. Do not forgive them. What's going on here? What we see here in Nehemiah's prayer is very similar to what we see all throughout the book of Jeremiah. It's very, it's very familiar to what we see in a number of the Psalms. These are called imprecatory prayers. Prayers where you're crying out for God to bring justice. Now, we've been looking at Nehemiah for several weeks now and I think we've, we've learned that this guy's a man of prayer. And what we need to understand here is he just prays all the time. In chapter one, he got the news about how the walls were destroyed and what did he do? He wept and he cried and he mourned. So, and then what did he do? He prayed. When he's sad, he prays. Then in chapter two, when King Artaxerxes starts asking him questions, he gets afraid. So what does he do? He prays. So when he's sad, he prays. When he's afraid, he prays. Now when he hears what Sam Ballad and Tobiah are saying about him and his God and his people and what he's doing, now he's angry. So he prays. He's sad, he prays. He's afraid, he prays. He's angry, he prays. He just prays. He just prays all the time. And at this particular point in time, he's very angry with Sam Ballad and Tobiah. But he doesn't say, oh, here's, here, God, here's what I'm gonna do. No, he says, God, here's what I'm calling on you to do because he knows that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And his ultimate concern, if you look at the end of verse five, his concern is for God. He says, they have provoked you to anger. He's concerned about God's name and God's glory. And yes, Jesus has shown us a better way in Matthew 5, 44. Pray for those who persecute you. But listen, you can't pray and love someone when you're still angry at them. You need to pour out your anger in prayer to God and allow God to pour in grace and mercy and forgiveness. I love what Psalm, uh, where is it? Psalm, let's just bring it on the screen. Psalm 62, verse eight. I love what Psalm 62, verse eight says. Pour out your heart before the Lord. What's in your heart? Chapter one, Nehemiah had sadness in his heart. Chapter two, he had fear in his heart. Chapter four, he had anger in his heart. Pour out your anger, let God deal with it, and then allow God to pour in what needs to be there. That's why prayer is so vital. And then I love verse six. So we built the wall. So we built the wall. I just, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Oh, you're saying we're feeble and that a fox will break down our wall, Tobiah and Sam Ballot? Okay, watch this. Another brick. We're still going. How do you like me now? Does this look feeble to you? 
Let's go. I just, it's so matter of fact. So we built the wall. And they, they just kept going. And then it says, and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work or they worked with all their hearts, have a mind to what God has given you. If you have an opportunity to serve the Lord here in this church or outside its walls, have a mind to work. Like Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Have a mind to work. And notice that they're halfway done now. It says they joined it together at half its height. That was part of Nehemiah's strategy. Into these 40 groups centered around the gates and they built towards one another horizontally. He gave them a vertical height that they needed to reach that was halfway. Once they got to that height, they weren't supposed to keep building up. They were then supposed to stop building vertically and start building horizontally. Why? Because if a wall is 12 feet high on one part and one feet high on another part, there's no point in having a wall. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can get so competitive in comparing ourselves to others. And, oh, look how good we're doing over here. Oh, this is great. Oh, poor you over. Th-. No, we are supposed to be building this thing together. And if one of us stumbles and falls, we all stumble and fall. And we don't get there until we all get there. We're all in this together. And so it wasn't that, you know, one team got their wall built, you know, 20 feet high. It's got a water slide off of it and a balcony and a mini bar. No, the idea is, no, you build to this high and then you reach out to the next team and help them do what they're doing. And so we shouldn't be off in our own silos, personally or even according to ministries. We all need to be working together for that common purpose. So they pray, they get the wall half done. Verse seven, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, verse eight, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So opposition came and they prayed. Did the opposition go away? No, it didn't. Does that mean that they prayed wrong? No, it isn't. What we need to be prepared for in our walk and following Jesus Christ is yes, opposition will come and we'll pray, but when we start to really lean on the Lord and really seek his purposes, chances are the opposition is not gonna go away. It's actually gonna get worse. It's not just, you know, oh, things were hard and then I prayed and then God made them easy. Praise the Lord. That's really not how it works because God is doing more than simply building a wall. He is building a people. And he is developing their character. Jameson said to me between the services, you know, sure, sure you can swat a fly, but wouldn't you rather be able to kill a bear? And if the opposition was just easy, if it could just go away so quickly, that, that doesn't develop your character. That doesn't make you stronger. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, allows the opposition to increase even after they prayed. But look at their same reaction in verse nine. And we prayed to our God. 
We're just gonna keep praying. Not all prayer didn't work. Look, it's worse. I gotta try a new strategy. No, the strategy remains the same. But the opposition is more intense now. Before it was like sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me because they were just talking. Now they're actually, they're planning on fighting against Jerusalem. They're bringing those sticks and stones and they plan on breaking some bones. And so it's getting a lot more serious and also their numbers are increasing. Sam Ballad and Tobiah, they're from Samaria to the north. And if you take a look at this uh, map here, uh, there's Jerusalem in the middle and Samaria uh, has been opposed to them right from the beginning and Ammon as well. And Arabia was mentioned before, but now the people of Ashdod have joined in. And so now they're totally surrounded. There's nowhere for them to look but up to the Lord for help. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So they start to pray again. It's also crucial to make a note of what they do after they pray. Verse nine, we prayed to our God. Notice the unity there, not just Nehemiah praying, everyone praying, it was our God. And then it says, and set a guard as protection against them day and night. They prayed and they set a guard. Such an important lesson here. If there is a next step that you can take that is practical and that is obedient to the Lord, you are not being unspiritual or you are not lacking faith if you take that step while praying. Some people will try to counsel you that to truly trust the Lord is to do absolutely nothing, to pray and be passive. That is not how God wants us to follow him. We pray and we set a guard. We're gonna trust that God's gonna come through for us, but we're gonna watch and make sure that the enemy doesn't just come walking right in. Yes, we'll pray. We'll pray for your wayward teenager. We'll pray that God would change their heart and transform them and allow them to see the beauty of Jesus Christ like they never have before. But we're also gonna set a curfew. And we're also gonna talk about what's acceptable and appropriate to happen under your roof. And we're also gonna cut off some friendships that need to be cut off. You're gonna pray and you're gonna set a guard. And yes, we're gonna pray that God would rescue you out of the financial difficulty that you find yourself in and that there would be a miraculous breakthrough, but we're also gonna cut your credit card so it doesn't happen again. We're gonna register you for financial stewardship and we're gonna get you some mentorship of someone who can help you establish a budget. Yes, we will pray for you earnestly that God would set you free from the sinful addiction that you keep coming back to. We'll pray that God would break through. But we're also gonna get you accountability in your life. We're also gonna look at how you live and the different times in which you're tempted and avoid those situations. We're gonna pray, but we're gonna set a guard. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. And that's what we need to understand. That doesn't make you unspiritual. It makes you more spiritual. It doesn't mean that you're, tr that you're not trusting God. It means that you're trusting him even more. They prayed and they set a guard. Unity is essential. Opposition is unavoidable. Prayer is vital. And then make note of this, that discouragement is normal. Discouragement is normal. Even, even though 
They were making so much progress. They're halfway done. Even though they were praying all the time, even though Nehemiah had them so organized, the people still became discouraged. Verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. One of the main reasons why we get discouraged in our Christian walk is because we're just plain tired. It's, we're just exhausted. We are spiritual beings and we are fighting a spiritual battle and we shouldn't ignore that. Our, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but at the same time, we are physical beings and the physical and the spiritual are more interconnected than we would like to admit. Sometimes we're discouraged just because we're plain exhausted. Sometimes the best advice is just to go to sleep and to find rest. Because here's what happens. When you're, when you're so tired and so exhausted, you're not thinking clearly. Listen to what they say. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. How much rubble is there compared to when they began the project? More rubble or less rubble? Less. Their amount of rubble is dramatically declining. And yet, because they're tired, even though the wall's half done, which means that half the rubble that used to be there is now part of the wall. They're so tired. They're just focused. They, the stones start to look bigger and they start to feel heavier because they're just plain exhausted. And then they say, by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. I mean, that's true. Amen to that. By yourselves, you will not be able to do it. That's why you're not doing it by yourself. That's why you're part of this big team that's on this construction project. That's why God is with us because we can't do it on our own. That's the only true thing they say in that whole, in that whole sentence. Verse 11 and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So they're talking to themselves, words of discouragement. I'm so tired. There's so much rubble. I can't do it. Then in one ear, the enemy is saying, we're going to do a sneak attack and we're going to kill you. So they're hearing that from the enemy. You start giving the enemy, you let the enemy into your head. You let the end start listening to the lies of the enemy? You start listening to yourself and your own discouragement? How about listening to other people? Verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. People from Jericho, people from Tekoa, people from the other cities, the cities that the people left behind, they're saying, you gotta come back. We miss you. The farm is overgrown. The harvest is coming. We've, we've gotta, we've, we need your help back home. I know it's great that you're doing this Jerusalem rebuild thing, but come on. Like you, and it says they said it 10 times. Here's a recipe for discouragement. You're overtired and you start talking negatively to yourself. And then you start to let the enemies speak to you. And then you let probably just well-meaning people who miss them start to speak to them as well. And what does that result in? Complete discouragement. Discouragement then leads to depression. Depression then leads to complete despair. That there's, there's no point in going on. And the people were on the brink of that. 
Then look down at verse 14. This is how Nehemiah responds. He says, and I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid. Discouragement comes from fear, from thinking that God is not with us, that we have to do this by ourselves. He says, do not be afraid, remember the Lord. Like any good spiritual leader, Nehemiah doesn't point people to himself. He points people to God. He says, remember the Lord. And he says, when you remember the Lord, then you're gonna have the courage to do this. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He's reminding them, remember God. Remember that he has this plan for us, something bigger than ourselves. Then look down at verse 16. It says, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. So from that point on, because of the threat, Nehemiah doesn't ignore the threat. They prayed, they knew that God would do it, but he set a guard. He cut his workforce in half. They were able to rebuild this wall in 52 days. Many of those days were with only half the people working. He cut his workforce in half. He took the threat very, very seriously. It says, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, verse 17, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. So they got a sword in one hand. They're carrying stuff. With, with the other. Even the people who are working are doing it as they carry their swords. Verse 19, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. He acknowledges that there's a lot of work to do. He acknowledges that we are separated from one another. We're spread far apart. They all met halfway, but now they've gone back to the beginning point to try to build the rest of the wall. Nehemiah doesn't pretend like there isn't a problem. He acknowledges the the struggle that they're up against. And then he goes on, we are separated on the wall, far from one another. But just because they're separated doesn't mean they're not united. Verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. I love this. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Our God will finish what he started. We will finish this wall. And if we get attacked in the meantime, we will win because God will fight for us. When you know God will fight for you, that doesn't mean that you just leave your your sword at home. It means that you're ready to battle. Look down at verse 23, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. And then it says, each kept his weapon at his right hand. That phrase, none of us took off our clothes, what they're saying is they didn't put bed clothes on, no pajamas. Before they went to bed, they put on the clothes that they were gonna wear that next day. They had their sword with them. Why? Because if that trumpet sounded... They were going going to get up and be ready to fight. 
And what we're looking for here at Harvest Bible Chapel is disciples who have Jesus Christ who sleep with their clothes on, who are ready at, at the drop of a hat, at the sound of a trumpet saying, I am here, I am ready. I am ready to do whatever it takes. Not because of confidence in myself or confidence in this church, but confidence in God that he will fight for us. It's an odd phrase at the end of verse 23 there. It says, he kept his weapon at his right hand. Uh, there's a footnote there in, uh, in the Hebrew. The phrase just uh, simply says, each weapon his water. Each weapon his water. I think what's being described there is that while they're sleeping in bed with their clothes on, ready to fight, sort of one eye open, if they need to get up for a drink of water, they take their weapon with them. Even when they're off duty, they're on duty. Even when they're off duty, they're on duty. What we need is we need people on a welcome team who are not just shaking hands and smiling when they're wearing a blue shirt because it's their time to serve in the schedule, but we need people who are on a welcome team who when they see someone sitting by themselves, go up to them, introduce themselves, make sure that they know how to get plugged into a church. When we, when we have our swords at our right hand, that we're always on duty, that someone who's in a harvest kids doesn't just sort of watch the clock until the last kid gets, gets picked up and then bolted out of here as fast as they can. No, they're, they're always ready. Even when they're off duty, they're on duty. Whatever needs to happen, whatever, need, whatever conversation needs to happen with someone, whatever stacking chairs, whatever it takes, even when we're off duty, we need to be on duty. We're all called to build and we're all called to battle. And we're all promised that God will fight for us. I turn with me quickly to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is in the, uh, the New Testament towards the uh, end of your Bible. You find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then uh, Acts and Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Find Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. This is... This is how all scripture is God breathed. And this is how it is profitable for us to study a passage like Nehemiah chapter three and Nehemiah chapter four. Because although we're not physically building something, we're not building some fortress to try to keep the non-Christians out. That's not us. But we are called upon to build something. We are building up the body of Christ. Chapter two of Ephesians in verse 22, it says, in him, in Christ Jesus, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being built and we are in the process of building. Look at chapter four, verse 11. Again, building, it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work. Do you have a mind to work? We are called to do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. All of us need to have a shovel or a trowel or a tool. All of us need to be actively doing something to build up what Christ has started and what Christ has promised to finish. So we're all called to build, but we're also all called to battle. Look in Ephesians chapter six and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, we are not going up against the Samaritans and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and the Arabians. We do not have a physical enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. All of those evil forces, therefore, in verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Listen, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 tells us that we're all supposed to be building. And then Ephesians 6 says that as we're building, we're supposed to be doing it with the armor on, ready to fight. It describes the armor. In verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and notice this, and the sword of the spirit, that sword you're supposed to have at your right hand, that sword that you're supposed to take with you, even when you get up to take a drink in the middle of the night, we need the word of God, take it with you, which is the word of God. And here's how the battle is won, just just like Nehemiah, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. Our, our, Our work is clear. We're supposed to be building up. But we're also in a battle where you need to be armored and ready to fight, fighting with the word of God, the sword of the spirit, fighting in our warfare, which is prayer. Every believer who's here today, you're called to build and you're called to battle. You're called to be a worker and you're called to be a warrior. But you might be here today and you're still stuck in Nehemiah chapter four, verse 10. You're so tired There's so much rubble. You can't even think about mustering the strength just to move one brick from the ground onto the wall. Listen, just like Nehemiah said, remember the Lord. He will fight for us. Grab hold of that brick by faith. Take your eyes off the brick Get your eyes on the Lord who is reaching down to strongly support you in doing what he has called you to do. I'm gonna invite the worship team to to come forward and we're gonna sing a song that's gonna help us get our eyes on the Lord, his goodness, his love, his concern for us. And that he has called us to build, he has called us to battle, but he has promised that he will fight for us. And so let's bow our heads and prepare to respond in song uh, to the truths that we've heard from God's word. And so Father in heaven, God, we look to you right now. God, we don't wanna look to the difficulty of the task. We don't wanna look to the discouragements that We hear coming from ourselves or coming from the enemy or coming from others, Lord. We wanna hear from you. We wanna see you as you truly are. We wanna claim that promise that you will indeed fight for us. And God, I pray that we would be found faithful. And God, that as we're building up the body, that we would do that while we're wearing armor and ready to fight. 
God, we have an enemy who hates us, who wants to destroy us and discourage us and defeat us. But God, you are invincible. And so Lord, I pray that we would walk so closely to you, knowing that because you will fight for us, we cannot lose. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.